This is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. The podcast here, we will push the confines of your traditional academic disciplines and like the subjects of its concerns, African and African American studies, you know, survive under the most terrible of circumstances, but achieve rigor and become even more robust because of it. And so in this podcast, we will unveil how the objectives of African and African American studies can be found in the everyday, if you'll just look. Now let's get into it. Well, Warrington, my scholar activist in training, are you excited for today's conversation? Absolutely, Dr. Banton. Listening to two of my beloved mentors talk politics and protests is definitely something that I'm excited and honored to be a part of. Right. Sure. Yes, of course. Right. I figured you'd enjoy the politics. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, okay. wait, wait. Now, we not, nobody said I enjoy politics. Uh, well, uh, don't you have a master's in political science? Ah, you're doing what most people do when I tell them I study political science. I should have expected that from a historian. Oh, no. Oh, no, sir. We're not going to do that. We are not going to do that. Well, I mean, like you said, as I as you said, as I've completed my master's in political science. I feel that it is appropriate to say that as a denizen of the field. Oh, denizen. Where are you getting these words? Whatever. Whoa, whoa. Who's denizen? <laughs> as I was saying, as a denizen of the field, I feel that it would be inaccurate and insufficient to reduce the study to politics. What do you mean politics? <laughs> what do y'all be doing over there in political science if you don't be enjoying politics? <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Dr. Benton. I said that you did what most people do when I tell them I study political science, and that is forget about the science. Now, we are not the same as your biologies and chemistries, the quote-unquote hard sciences. And a big reason for that, I think, is because of the degree of variation in findings gathered from political science research. In other words, you can create scientific laws, gravity, motion, conservation of energy. But that is not quite the case with political science. That's because the state of nature, quote unquote, that the hard sciences examine in their research is not the nature that is studied by political scientists. In the very abstract, we study the nature of people and the interactions that they have amongst one another, but then place that in the context of power. So how people interact in order to gain and maintain power and the ways in which people interact as a result of presiding under said power. And so when I think of politics, as you say, I think of red, blue, CNN, Fox, warring sides, corrupt leaders, and rich white people. And Beyonce. <laughs> and LeBron James, sure. <laughs> so these are elements of political science, including the rich white people. But they overlook the theories, methodologies, empirical data, and social experiments that aim to fix everything that is wrong with politics. In other words, politics is a rigged game that only has one type of winner. Political science is a discipline that studies the state of people and their relations to and within institutions of power. 
The way they communicate and mobilize, their psychology, how they behave, how they engage. And we study political science, well, at least some of us do, not just to know the three branches of government and a bill is on Capitol Hill, but to reimagine in real time the structures, institutions, and systems of power in order to govern better, represent better, relate internationally better, choose better leaders, make laws better, distribute resources better, and ultimately, Dr. Benton, make people's lives better. Well, 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 talk that thing. <laughs> talk that thing, young buckaroo. You better defend your little discipline there. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I sure will. But that is the reason that I'm excited for this episode. Not because we will talk politics, but for the jewels that will be dropped. And I can hopefully take these jewels with me on my journey towards making our systems work better for everyone. Today, we're joined by Dr. Neja Kofi-Baptiste, a professor of political science at the University of Arkansas. Now, Dr. Baptiste, and we every time we see each other, we have this little fight. He completed his undergraduate studies at the historically black North Carolina Central University and obtained his master's degree in political science from the historically black Jackson State University and obtained his PhD from the Department of Political Science at what is referred to commonly as the Black Mecca. Oh, you guys are so annoying. (laughs) Howard University. I just want the listeners to know that as a graduate of Grambling State University, where everybody is somebody, that I take great offense (laughs) to the badgering that I receive from Dr. Baptiste every time we encounter each other. (laughs) But Dr. Baptiste, my good brother, you know, has a very interesting research that focuses on American politics and political theory, race and ethnicity politics, political media, civil rights politics, and of course, Africana studies. So my good brother, Baptiste... Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Benton and Warrington, for having me on your magnanimous podcast. I really appreciate you allowing me to join y'all. So tell me, what did it give to you getting these three degrees from these HBCUs that you weren't able to get from these other predominantly white universities or historically white universities? Well, I'll tell you one thing it didn't give me. It didn't give me a lot of money. Okay. <laughs> that's the government. That's not their fault. Right, 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 right. That's good, and, and, and that's true, right? But and that's the interesting part. For example, I'm at Jackson State, where I learned uh, one of my professors, um, the late attorney Isaiah Madison, defended the Ayers Fordyce case that basically argued that HBCUs were historically underfunded. And then just recently, uh, it became the precedent for the case that was done in Maryland um, this year, the settlement that was done about HBCUs being grossly underfunded. So even though I didn't have the monetary advantages at the time, it gave me so, so much more. It gave me such a rich and robust experience in different ways. And and it was like each level of university I went to provided, with, provided me with space and the autonomy to have both Black identity and rigorous education. In most of these historically white colleges and universities, they do not allow students to have both. If you have to have a safe space in a university, 
what does that say about the space outside of that safe space? Right? HBCUs, the whole the whole campus is a safe space. Right? Everywhere in the it's the culture, it's the people. North Carolina Central, uh being able to have chicken day, fish day. People can say what they want to get black folks eat chicken. Yes we do. But I love chicken. I don't see the problem with it. And if we got chicken day, guess who I am? On the ten forty break where they play music to students and students dance and everybody has classes off between ten forty and like eleven twenty. That was at No Cloud Central. It's like every day is homecoming. It's a family and community environment, and it allows you the rigor that you receive at other universities while giving you a different, I was talking to a student today again about the souls of black folks, but it gives you a different education that you aren't allowed to get in these predominantly white spaces. It just isn't there. Um, they're usually mitigated and controlled and orchestrated by white males that telling us how to talk, how to walk, uh, what is acceptable, what is threatening, what isn't threatening. And everything that we do, even down to our music, even down to the clothes we wear, you know, I don't want to have to wear dress clothes every day just for somebody not to call the police on me. I don't want to have to uh, wear my hair a certain way in order to get a grant or fellowship. I don't want to have to be considered deficient because I don't agree with the dominant narrative. And Howard, in particular, gave me, the last seven years of Howard, gave me a chance to be able to be with a family that allows me the rigor that I needed, but gave me the confidence, right? Yes. To want to engage. It sounds like I'm hearing, and as someone who also went to an HBCU, and as studies have shown, right, if uh, you're a black person who is immersed in that kind of a black world, there, as you mentioned, there's a kind of confidence that you gain by being your whole self, not having to code switch, which is basically in some sense performing for white people. On on the other hand, there's a kind of knowledge that, you know, being in a predominantly white institution that you also get to that black people and other minorities have had to learn that is actually valuable. I was reading, um, I'm sure you've seen what's going on with Nicole Hannah-Jones, and she recently said that black Americans are the most are among the most astute political and social observers of American power because our survival has and still depended on it. I have studied power my entire life from within institutions where I wielded none. I have written about it, I've reported on it, I've read about it, I've observed it, and over the years I've worked myself to accrue it, which is really what angers so many people. And she said that power can be used in service of self or in service of community. We all have to be responsible for which we choose. But it brought me back to something that I read in James Weldon Johnson's um, autobiography of Ex-Colored Man, written in 1912, when he said, The colored people of this country know and understand the white people better than the white people understand and know themselves. And the boy said it in, in Souls of White Folk. He said, of them, I am singularly clairvoyant. I see in and through them. I see these souls undressed. And from the back and side, I see the working of their entrails. I know their thoughts and they know that I know. So there is this kind of knowledge that, or that may be a kind of dichotomy that exists by black people negotiating black and white spaces and I wanted you to just, you know, say a little bit about that. Yeah. It's so interesting that you said that because 
when we were talking about politics and wanted to talk about politics earlier, politics is the study of power, right? But black politics in particular, which is what I said, you can only study at Howard, right? But black politics uh, as it's defined as a function of a of the particular brand of segregation found in different environments in which black people find themselves. And Ron Walters talks about this idea of being black in black spaces and being black in white spaces and how you have to navigate these things, right? What does it mean to be able to understand when we talk about the boys, we have to talk about the double double consciousness, right? This kind of warring of two of two souls. What does it mean to have to adhere to one set of rules and then have to deal with one set of rules inside of another space? You could be too white in, in one space that you consider a sellout inside the black space and too black in, in the white space to the point that you are no longer acceptable within it, right? What you're talking about as far as sounds like Jones and Coates that are going back to HBCU, we're watching and witnessing an exodus. So they're bringing back with them what they have witnessed, right? Like I, what, what I have witnessed inside of these white spaces to teach black students how to navigate these spaces if they choose to go out. Um, being at, at the University of Arkansas, for example, you have to come with a certain armor on, right, to be able to exist inside these spaces because you know that the goal in the space is for you to assimilate to the dominant narrative. Don't allow yourself to be whitewashed through your educational process. Meaning that while we are learning, we have to maintain our identity at the same time. How do you guard against that, though? How do you, as a black person at a predominantly white institution as we are, how do you maintain that kind of... Because I, I think it's a kind of dignity where you can remain yourself and not be co-opted by the institution while being there. Right, absolutely. And I think that takes being a part of spaces like the Africana study space, right? Again, when I was at NC State, because I was able to take Dr. Hayes' course, that allowed me to be the understanding of the need of having this confidence and the need of having this ability to not be saying that I don't have to forego my identity simply because I'm at a historically white college and university. I should not have to be ashamed of certain ways that I speak or talk or have to code switch simply to appease folks. And it's the goal of education is really about improving society and the world around us, then it has to be focused on the notion of allowing people to be who they are and to understand the culture. That's why the difference between diversity and cultural competence. Cultural competence means that I don't just tolerate you, right? I don't tolerate you being inside of my space. I understand that it is a shared space and you have just as much right as I do to be inside of the space, right? And I think that's going to be a, a continual struggle. And for students that are in predominantly white spaces, it's important for them to create enclaves of power and enclaves of black power, right? Enclaves where they can have spaces where they can freely discuss the issues that are going on on campus. Now, a black student newspaper, like I had when I was at NC State, we had the Nubian Message. Um, we had a black student center where, where people can go into and you know talk about the occurrences of the day. Because the idea is that these environments that we are in are producing certain types of experiences. And there's not any system that exists that does not want to maintain itself. All systems seek predictable growth. So when you enter a system, when you try to bring in your identity, it's going to automatically push back against you. And we have to train students to be prepared for that pushback. 
that co-optation that you're talking about, that idea of saying your music can't be played or you can't have a chicken day or, or a Greek D9 day or whatever it is, because the idea is that there's a way to be able to erase you as a person that is there adding to the environment and just use you as a number to be counted. And we don't want to just be a number. We want to say, if we're in these spaces, allow us to operate in a way in which we need to operate to add to the space if the goal was really about bringing us here to bring substance to the space. Frederick Douglass says, power conceives nothing without demand. Absolutely. It never has and it never will. Now, in terms of, I've heard you mention all your mentors who seem to be deeply steeped in Africana or Black Studies or Pan-African Studies. I want you to talk a little bit about the intersection or studying political science in an undisciplined way by taking into consideration these concerns from African and African-American studies or Black studies. How do we go about studying political science that can add rigor and keep the data as reliable as possible by studying it in an undisciplined way um, using the methodologies of African and African-American studies? Right. And I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, because, you know, there's this feeling debate, especially within the high, school, or the high schools around critical race theory, right? I had to do an interview the other week about critical race theory. And I ended up talking about it in the idea of understanding that what we do in black politics is expose the deficiencies within the American system. We point out patterns that continue to raise us. Because that's what we do in sciences, the social sciences. I think the main thing is is to be able to control your own methodology. These go back to defining what you need. I was taught to use whatever methodology is needed to answer your question. Within political science, and I don't know within social sciences, we're real quant-heavy, quantitative data. So that's using, you do survey instruments. So traditionally in political science, we uh, use survey data. Some people use survey data to answer a question. They ask people a uh, litany of questions and measure their political attitudes based on that and then see if they have some sort of impact on them. So basically, I ask you, you know, do you consider yourself a conservative? Do you, uh, what do you think about uh, different types of policies? And we are able to discern your political orientation. And quant is good for its purpose, which gives you a breadth of a phenomenon. But it does not give you the depth of it. And so, especially when you're dealing with indigenous cultures and uh, marginalized groups, especially as, uh, as Africans and African-Americans, we don't communicate in the same way. For example, there's a book I call Barber Shop Bob of the BET, written by Melissa Harris Perry, who's a black political scientist. But she went and used non-traditional means of collecting data. She went into a barbershop and had somebody sit there and record conversations. She went into a church and recorded it, uh, a minister and his radio show. She went and listened to rap music. It's about examining the experiences of people and marginalized people from their perspective. Du Bois does this with the Philadelphia Negro experience. He does an ethnographic study. He goes into the space. I think the problem is that we are too busy hiding inside of the ebony and ivory towers. There's an article called The Streetlight Effect. We're trying to write to wherever the journals and the funding is, as opposed to not, not understanding that as we write to the journals and where the funding is, Things that are happening on uh, outside of the academy are starting to put pressure on it, and, it, and it's making it change, and it's making it move, right? Black scholars, marginalized scholars, being able to be in control of their research design and not writing to what people want 
if you have to use quantitative methods, that's fine. If you want to use mixed methods, that's fine too. Uh, most of the time, that's that's relevant based on resources. But the idea of being able to, for example, me as a black scholar, I'm able to write two black journals, which means that, for example, I'm working on a piece dealing with Stevie Wonder and the MLK holiday. I was created. I was able to create my own method of examining music, right, and to be able to speak about the intersection between black activism and black music. And so to be able to have journal spaces and to be able to have conferences like Encode, to be able to have scholars that say, that encourage you and say, use whatever you got to use, we'll help you shape it. As long as you have a question, go find the answer yeah. in an undisciplined way. Using, using any type of, undis- whether that means you got to go, for example, Dr. Naomi Carter wrote a book called American While a Black. And one of the things she, she kind of um, tapped into was the idea that in Southern spaces, you can't just simply use what, in what we call the snowball sample. I ask you to recommend somebody, et cetera, et cetera. She said there has to be, for, for black spaces, there has to be an invitational sampling, which means that I ask you to introduce me to this person. You have to actually, in, in the black Southern environment, you have to actually take me to their house. And you have to say, hey, we have to sit down and eat a meal. You see what I'm saying? This was ethnographic, right? I think that was more important than any of the national surveys she did because she was able to tap into a authentic experience, right? We're trying to understand this experience. And like you said, we become so behind and so reactive as opposed to proactive scholars that we are missing the forest for the trees. By the time we, we write it up, the phenomenon has already grown and morphed into something else. <laughs> exactly. Right? I, mean, I mean, human behavior and human nature continually evolve and more, especially marginalized people. We don't use the, the, the whole point that um, Melissa Hedges was making was that we don't use the traditional spheres of influence. When, when, when black people talk about politics, we're not talking about it at the town square or the town hall or in the traditional manner in which America has said this is where you talk about politics. We talk about it in our barbershops, in our homes, in our churches, in our music. And I think the idea, like you said, you, you use the method that helps answer the question. We don't confine ourselves to just say we only use quant. We use it to answer the question, whatever the question is. Whatever question that we make up, that's how we use it. That is, I think, the defining feature of African and African-American studies and why we call this podcast on discipline. It's from so many scholars who have encountered that is um, how they go about. You have a question, you go and find the answer. So I'm a historian. It does not necessarily mean I have to go only look in the archives for answers, right? I can look in music, lyric, um, I can read a novel to gauge the context of a time, right? I can look at artifacts, you know, I can look at objects, all kinds of different things. You know, you and Warrington have this in common, you know, political protests. Does it actually work? I want I want you to tell me, because, you know, as someone who likes to bring the noise, you know, and bring the heat, um, does it actually work, and does it have to be nonviolent? I mean, it's so interesting because I just wanted to kind of backtrack a little bit because you were talking about different using different methods. That's what I love about Africana studies, and that's what I love about black politics, right? To understand subcultures and the kind of kind of public and the kind of sphere and what leads to our behaviors, we have to understand it in any facet possible, 
and uh, whether that's uh, that's why if you read some of my stuff, I may use a quote from Langston Hughes, or I may use music, or I may use whatever. Like you said, everything is at play when you're talking about the souls of black folks, right? Because you have to understand from a particular perspective. But that's your question about protest. Does it work? <laughs> right? I think you as a historian, and me as a historian as well, because as a black political scientist, we don't believe in just confining ourselves to politics, the political arena, the partisanship. We believe in using history, sociology, psychology, physiology, psych- psychology. I do political psychology as well. Whatever is needed in order to understand the phenomenon, right? And protest and activism is inherent in being a black scholar, as you understand it, and as I understand it, and as I was trained. And I was trained that protest is, is just as important as voting, uh, especially within the black community. Um, I say this all the time, voting is not enough. Activism is a must. <laughs> now, protest has been used. We're dealing with the actual political system. Again, like I said, when people say the system, right, they're not just saying any frivolous words, right? Within political science, there's something called systems theory by David Easton. You make demands on the system, and they are supposed to process it, and then policy is supposed to come out. But as uh, some scholars have argued, when we put black demands on the system, we deal with co-optation and neglect and oppression and domination. And so, as King said, a protest is the language of the unheard. And we have to just come to grips with the reality of it doesn't matter how we protest in the 21st century. In, in the 20th century, throughout history, it has always been seen as a threat to the American society. When King protested, he was arrested 15 times. I want that, I want that documented. 15 times, at least. He was seen as a rebel rouser and radical. Not the, not the sanitized, whitewashed, I have a green content of character, not color of our skin. Color, not, color the, not the huggable skin. Martin Luther King. Not the green king. I'm talking about the, the, the king that said in the very same speech, America has written a blank check with the Constitution, and every time we go to cash that check, it comes back insufficient funds. That king, that's the king I'm talking about. The where do we go from here? Chaos or community? Is it too late, king? That's the one I, I like to quote. I think the the argument is, and the understanding of most people is that just like with methodology, there's one type of way to protest. There is no one type of way to protest. Even these uprisings that we saw in Ferguson and in Baltimore, where I'm actually from that side of Baltimore. They are considered uprisings. What a riot looks like is what happened in 1868 in Wilmington, North Carolina, when white folks went in there and killed black folks simply because they had businesses that were millionaires. Or January 6th. All the way up until now. There's going to always be white pushback to black progress. And does it work? I think sometimes we got to understand what it is that we're trying to, to get, right? Because very often does our protest lead to policy outcome. More than not, what it has led to is a shifting in the paradigm and the ideological orientation within the Black community to let us understand that they can't change us, right? That we came together and we are strong and we are able to still do it. And it may take a long time, as King said, the more often the universe bends, as long as a while, but it bends towards this. But nothing bends without pressure. And you can't continue to use the same strategy with a system that is as sophisticated as the American white supremacy system. 
you can't use the same strategy because it will adapt to it. And so that's why Black Lives Matter and these new contemporary movements are so important because they came up with non-traditional, non-conventional means of political protest. Because we were, we had already made the shift in 1972 from protest to politics, according to Bayard Rustin, who is considered the architect of the civil rights movement, the first black queer civil rights leader that nobody really talks about. Right? Mm-hmm. And Bayard Rustin said we, we, we were making a shift from protest to politics, which means that they no longer dealt with the grassroots, right? They only dealt with uh, the National Association for certain people, the National of certain people, right? They only cared about the middle class and you know, getting jobs and such and such. There was nothing wrong with that. But the problem is the same issue that we were dealing with in 1965 and we're still dealing with in 2021. So I literally, I have my students do a critical analysis of the signs that's being held at a pro- Black Lives Matter protest and a protest that was done in 1964 and 65. The signs are identical. We want jobs. We want the inner police brutality. We want better education. How are we, and, and I had a white student once say, how are we still dealing with these issues in 2021? Because protesting incrementally works, right? The way that we do it, which is nonviolent, right? That's the way that we had adapted as a team which is nonviolent, but there was a way that we protested before King, before the Civil Rights Movement, before Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. The irony is that when we look at Stokely Carmichael, he, he shows us the split. Because when Stokely Carmichael goes from Stokely Carmichael to Kwame Teray, Stokely Carmichael was actually part of the Civil Rights Movement, then he became the part of the SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, with um, Ella Baker, and then the Black Power Movement. And so when you affect, you, you see the evolutionary shifts. It's all about strategies, right? Protesting is really about strategy. Does it work? Sometimes. <laughs> Does it work? Sometimes. It doesn't produce everything we want? Absolutely not. Can we continue to do nonviolent tactics and think it's going to work? I think we learned with the last Black Lives Matter movement that the American system has adjusted to protesting. It doesn't have the same effect. The whole point of protesting was to appeal to the moral dilemma. Using Gandhi's strategy where you would line people up, one person would get injured by the police on camera, and then they'll put somebody else up and they get injured by the police on camera. They would beat them. Well, if now the system knows that if we just don't beat them, they don't get the same response. And even when it got to the point where they would tell protesters when to march, where to march, and what time, and how long they can march. That's not a protest to me. That's really just a fitness exercise, really, for the most part. Because the system is telling you where to go and what to do. And eventually, you have to use uh, methods that would, would not traditionally be used. Um, and that's why the Black Panther Party was so radical. The Black Panther Party produced a 10-point plan about things that they wanted, and they helped create the Before and After School program, free lunch, various programs that the public schools use to this day. And the idea of self-defense was something that was created within the Black Power, the Black Nationalist Movement. that leads us now to, as our good brother Walter Rodney used to say, our segment called Grounding with My People. I want to talk a little bit about a protest that is a little bit close to home. Uh, we had the Black at UARC protest here at the University of Arkansas. We saw here on campus the hashtag Black at UARC go viral Um, as students, alumni, faculty took to Twitter to talk about the kinds of systemic racism that exists on campus here at the University of Arkansas. 
And so, you know, many different tweets um, that was correlated under the hashtag Black at York. Students expressed their frustration, whether it's getting stopped by UAPB and having to step out of the car for the K-9 to search it because Sundays are for drug searches, um, one student said. And people like to bring drugs back to Fayetteville after breaks. I don't do drugs, didn't have any, and my car did not smell like it. Or, you know, um, you have, you know, a graduating class of mechanical engineers with a whole bunch of people will only have three black women, right? Or the campus... The whole University of Arkansas, the flagship university of this state, uh, with 15% black people having only 4% black people on campus. So they created a list of the uh, of 15 demands. So um, I wanted you to, you know, talk to students about um, protest and what might be some of the kinds of leverage that they might have or how they might go about doing it. How do they go about shaking power in such a way that they can concede to their demands? I'll start broadly. Right? The power of any system, including the American democracy, does not lie with the politicians, does not lie with the elected officials. They have authority. The power in any system lies with the people. I'm taken back because these demands that these students have were some of the demands that we had. When I was a student back in the ancient times, when I was a student at North Carolina State, the Black Student Board put out a report card that assessed five main areas, environment, teacher to student ratio, racial slurs, insensitive comments by faculty and students. And they dealt in, in these different areas and they gave the university a failing grade. Say that again. The student assessed the university? Uh, they created a, a racial report card. They oh. used five statistical areas to assess the, the university. And with those five areas, um, including, you know, black teacher to student ratio, you know, based on the general categories in which students are, you know, environments in which they find themselves, how safe or protected the students feel, encounters with the police on campus, because that was an issue 20 years ago as well. You know, general feelings towards the campus, like a feeling thermometer. And it was one other area that, that they dealt with. But they really came up with a racial report card. And the university had a score of D. They had a failing grade. Here's talking to white colleges and universities. In a 70-student class, only seven of us are black. Maybe seven. Probably five. Again, I'm taking different classes in Africana Studies. So I'm learning about Abraham Lincoln inside this law and justice class. And then I'm learning about Abraham Lincoln's white dream inside Dr. Hayes' class, right? So this stuff is conflicting. I made a statement about uh, presidents of the first three to five presidents on slaves. My professor said it was probably the first, you know, two presidents. I did research and found out it was the first seven to ten presidents. And I spoke about it in class, and the teacher totally ignored it. The next class period, I'm talking to a student in class in the back and wondering where I get my information from. I'm telling her about my class with Dr. Hayes, and she asked me about the difference between the Mayafa and the Native American Trail of Tears, the Mayafa being the triangle slave trade. And I told her, you know, we can't compare them because it's apples to oranges, according to Fagan. But black folks were the only people that were dislocated, relocated, and isolated, stripped their bones. I'm saying this because the white student in the front who heard me, this white female, this Karen that heard me at the time, because the term Karen wasn't even, even around during that time. She told me to go back to Africa. If I don't like it, go back to Africa. And so because of that, we were able to organize protests, such and such, and activism on campus. But the point is that this was simply 
the straw that broke the, the camel's back. This was a long train of abuse. And I just want to say that this generation of black youth are so encouraging to me because they are not waiting. They're not waiting for a monolithic leader. They are not waiting for traditional ways of being able to express their issues. And they use the tools at their disposal. Social media is probably one of the greatest tools for contemporary political activism in the 21st century. Is that because it embarrasses the university? Yeah, well, it's not just embarrassing. When you're dealing with politics, with the, the allocation of values and resources, even within an academic environment, when you take a conflict outside of the box, so if I'm only dealing with it within the, the university setting and EEOC and such and such, it's fine. But as soon as I did my first newscast as an undergrad with BET or my first whatever I did back in the day before they had social media, then it becomes an issue because more people are now being exposed. Now, during that time, that's a couple thousand people in the early 2000s. But you can imagine in 2021, when students put uh, Blacks at UARC, I'm getting called by people in Germany about the hashtag. I'm getting called from people in Canada about the hashtag, right? <laughs> because the social media, it's not just the embarrassment of because this is the appeal to the more dilemma. The reason that King and them did nonviolent was to bring a violent reaction, right? They knew that, that the system couldn't control it. It's the same thing with social media. You're getting outside of the box. When you talk about something go viral, you're talking about millions of tweets. News outlets will pick it up around, or pick it up around the country. It was news for, in, in this day and age, the shelf life of a story is probably 15 seconds, not 15 minutes. When, when this hashtag went viral, it exploded everywhere. And there's power in galvanizing students together. Because most students, if you ask them in my class how they get their news information, it's not newspapers. It's not TV. It's not radio. It's not even Facebook or Instagram. They'll tell you that they see something on Snapchat or TikTok or they saw a blurb on the bottom. Or, or because they go to you, art, they got a notification. Think about if, if the civil rights movement was able to galvanize that many people that fast. So the order <laughs> Even the Black Lives Matter movement that started hashtag activism, now in this day and age, people are so accustomed to it that they automatically adhere to it. I think for the issues that the students are, are addressing, these demands have to be met. And, you know, as I was saying, go no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. That's a good point of departure. Thank you so much, Dr. Baptiste. Thank you for joining us. This was a privilege and an honor. Hope to see you soon, um, good brother. Thank you so much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Undiscipline is hosted by me, Karee Banton, with help from Warrington Sibri. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undiscipline for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>